are those who are four to six years old, you can go to your class. You can hold your hand in um, Psalm 96 and go to Romans 3. When I was a teenager, my dad uh, was a uh, high school teacher and during the summer did construction jobs. And one job in particular I remember, he worked for a veterinary clinic. And so at uh, times he would come home and say, never guess what I saw at the vets uh, today uh, from skunks to snakes and all kinds of crazy animals that people brought in for uh, to look at. But um, it was during uh, one, one of these summers that my dad says, okay, boys, and I had two brothers, that we're going to paint the floor of this um, large vet uh, clinic. Uh, if you've ever seen epoxy floor, uh, it's a really thick uh, paint. What's a rule that you always have to follow when you're painting a floor? Don't paint yourself in the corner, all right? So you can imagine uh, that uh, you have a group painting and uh, you get to the part, if we were to paint this room, and these two doors don't lead to an exit, but if we're painting the room together, and we work on our way back this way, and we realize that someone has painted this whole section, <laughs> and we look like there's no way to escape, what are we going to do? That's where Romans 3 is at. The whole group a whole group of people painted in a corner, nowhere to escape. I showed you Romans or uh, Psalm 96, and if you look at the end of Psalm 96, the last verse is up here on the screen. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Rejoice before the Lord. And the rest of the Psalm 96 that we read was a very joyful, worshipful song. But it ends how you might not expect. It ends with judgment. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in faithfulness. Who can rejoice at that? And the answer is, those who aren't painted in a corner. When you're done painting the floor and you're not painted into the corner, you're rejoicing the job is done. When you've painted the floor and you've painted yourself in the corner, the job is not done. You have to cover your footprints. You have to figure out what you're going to do to hide your mistake. This psalm is written for God's people. If you go over to Psalm 98, one page over, Another song of joyful noise to the Lord. Where we get make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, verse 4, break forth into joyous song and sing praises in verse 4. And you look down at verse 9. After singing for joy together before the Lord, for he 
comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Two psalms, one apart here, end with this joy with judgment. And I want to point out a few words here on the screen that are going to show up again. And if you were in Sunday school, you know, notice one of the primary words from, a theme words from um, Romans. What is uh, one of those words? Righteousness. That was one of the themes of Romans. And the other word right underneath righteousness is faithfulness. Righteousness and faithfulness. All right, now let's go to Romans uh, 3. And as uh, John mentioned in Sunday school, this is the Sunday that we overlap, where what I will preach is from the text that you read. You read Romans 3 twice, if you follow in the scripture reading this week. And if you read Romans 3, 1 to 8, you think, what is he talking about? Oh, let's get to verse 9. Okay, we can easily understand. <laughs> 9 and following. So, the expositor doesn't get the, the, the privilege of skipping passages. Um, and neither does whenever you go, get to something that's a little bit challenging. Uh, so what I do when I get to a challenging passage, I read it more. And I read it more. And I read it more. And I read it more. I'm like, I still don't know what this means. <laughs> so I read it more. And I read it more. And I'm asking God the whole time, the Holy Spirit wrote this. He knows what it means. So he's going to have to help me uh, to uh, discern what this means. And what I can uh, discern here from study this week, that Romans 3 uh, begins a uh, comparison here in a courtroom that was mentioned. A courtroom was mentioned in, uh, when we looked at Romans 3 in Sunday school. But there are questions that come up. You'll see in Romans 3, 1 to 8, nine questions in eight verses. Some of those are rhetorical questions that Paul's asking. Others, I think, he's asking, as he probably has witnessed to Jewish people, and you remember on his missionary journeys, he would often go to the synagogue first. Sometimes he'd spend a week or two, three weeks there in the synagogue at whatever city he went to, arguing, con trying to convince them. And I'm sure there was a lot of debate in those synagogues. And so some in the first two missionary journeys in particular, the Jewish people were his worst enemies. They were the ones who stoned him in Lystra. They were the ones who followed him around and, and uh, tried to uh, get him uh, thrown out of a city or imprisoned. And so he had a lot of arguments with Jewish people. And so you can imagine Paul witnessing to Jewish people, and they would say something like, well, what good is it to be a Jewish then? Okay? And when you're painted in a corner, there are a lot of angry reactions, especially when you're in a group painted in a corner. One person says, why did you not, why'd you paint all the way over to that wall? And the other people over there say, why'd you paint all the way over to this wall? And you can see how angry people painted in a corner together are going to go at each other. And so when guilty man realizes in Romans 1 and 2 that he's guilty, often the reaction isn't what we saw in Romans 2. It's meant to lead you to repentance. It's often lead you to 
Raise your hand and fist to God. Why did you? How could you? And you see, some of these kind of questions come out here in Romans 3, where a guilty world in a group is angry at God, thinking God has done wrong or done them wrong of why they're painted in the corner. And so we're going to see today, we're going to look at one slide that we're just going to go through the text and look at what we see about the questions that are confusing. Um, And then the second slide, what we learn about God. And if you're reading a passage of Scripture and you're not sure what it's about, uh, and you're still, and you read it and read it and read it, you still know what it's about, look for what you can learn about God. Because there's always something to learn about God, even the most difficult passages. And there's a lot of truth here about God that a guilty world needs. And it needs an accurate view of God. And as you are reading through Romans, as we saw in Sunday school, this is written to believers. The better you know Romans, the better you'll be able to represent Christ to a guilty world. You'll hear these kind of questions, these kind of demands, these kind of uh, ways of thinking incorrectly about God. You'll hear this again. This isn't just for Rome in the first century. You'll hear these kind of uh, things come up in conversations. And the book of Romans is, I said before, is a very logical friend. But as you have a logical friend in the book of Romans, that logical friend is to help you to bring logic to an illogical world that has lost its mind as they're painted in the corner and thinking pride is a good thing this month, and it's not. So a righteous God versus guilty man. What are the questions of the guilty? Now, we haven't read Romans 3, um, 1 to 8, but I'm going to give you the question, and then we're going to look and see if we find it in the text here. Doesn't God's choosing unfaithful people show him to be wrong. When you and I in our guilt are painted into a corner with our sin and our unfaithfulness to God, we can blame God for us being guilty. Now, this you may, okay, so what does this look like? Have you ever been guilty of, I don't know, using markers when you shouldn't have and you wrote on yourself and you, mom comes in the room and you've got marker all over you as well as your brothers and sisters did, but you're just glad it wasn't just you. And then, guilty look on the face, but when you're painted in a corner like, did you guys play with markers? Mom says first to try to see if you will admit no, we're not playing with markers, and you got marker all over you. <laughs> like it's obvious you've disobeyed. And then you start, well, uh, she said, sister, brother said we could use them if they are older and they allowed it, and, and you just come up with excuses. And, and, um, or I thought you, and you play ignorance, like I thought you, you meant something else, and you're questioning you're questioning, um, you're getting in trouble. 
And let's look at Romans 3, 1, 2, 3, and see if the Jewish people here, in the corner, guilty, don't think that there's something wrong about God for their situation. Verse 1 says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And you expect Paul to, if he says much in every way, you expect him in verse 2 to elaborate on that. But all he does is give one phrase and he moves on. Because often when we evangelize, people try to change the subject or they try to bring up questions that don't have any relevance to what you're trying to realize they're guilty and they're painted in a corner and they don't like being painted in a corner. So they, they bring up a question that doesn't have any real relevance to the situation. However, Paul does talk about circumcision, verses 25 to 29 of the previous um, verses, and um, the Jewish people are feeling guilty, maybe feeling singled out. And so uh, if there were in this corner of a group, Jewish people who felt attacked, they would say to Paul, what advantage does the Jewish person have then? And Paul doesn't answer their question probably how, he, how they want. He says, you Jewish people have much advantage. Why? Think about this. This is very logical. To begin with, the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God. Four times this word is translated oracles of God, and uh, it's consistently translated that way. If you have another translation, it may say the very words of God. So the very words of God are entrusted to a group of people. If you look up who wrote men, who wrote the Bible, of the 35 that we know by name, 34 of them are Jewish. Okay, so Old Testament, all Jewish authors, except you could say maybe Nebuchadnezzar wrote Daniel 4. He's not Jewish. That's one chapter. Uh, and maybe, maybe uh, some stories of others uh, were written uh, just uh, just very uh, small part. There we don't know who wrote some books, but the authors that we know of the Old Testament, uh, all Jewish except for maybe one chapter. In the New Testament, all Jewish except for we think Luke uh, likely wasn't Jewish, and he writes uh, Luke and Acts. But all Jewish authors except for Luke in the New Testament, uh, which we would expect uh, a Gentile who knows the Lord uh, to be used in the New Testament to write his word. But he's talking here to Jewish people who understand the Old Testament and understand God chose them. God chose you as a people, and God chose you as a nation, and he expected you to be a holy people, and he, he gave you his very words. And you know how the Jewish people treated God's word? With the utmost respect. They were very, very careful as a scribe. Very cautious, very holy in how they practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced before they even got to uh, copy God's word. They were, it had to be, their, their uh, print, and if you look at manuscripts, looks like it was typed, but it was handwritten because they practiced so much. They were so careful with God's word. God entrusted his word to the people that he knew would take great pains to make it perfect, 
as, as perfect as they could make it. So Paul is saying here, as you're feeling in the corner, uh, attacked as a Jewish person, he doesn't say all of the reasons. He just says one of the reasons to begin with, how, what advantage does the Jewish person have? What is the value of being physically Jewish? Much in every way, and you're trusted with the oracles of God. Verse 3. But what if some were unfaithful? And as um, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Stephen all preach, the uh, Old Testament Israelites were known for their unfaithfulness. So by, by and large, the people that Moses was leading out of Egypt, they were unfaithful, not faithful to the Lord. Uh, the people, as they go into the promised land, are faithful just for a time. And you read the book of Judges, and man, there's a lot of unfaithfulness there during the, the time of kings. Maybe Solomon and David, those reigns, and a few other godly kings in the south. But for the most part, Israel as a nation is unfaithful to God. So the Jewish people knew that. They knew their history. So he says in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. Do, does an unfaithful people, well, you would say if you're painted in a corner and you're guilty and you're illogical, you'd say, well, God was somehow wrong for choosing the Jewish people. No, he's not wrong. I chose the word wrong. Um, that might be small for you to see. I'm sorry. I'll make it bigger uh, next week. The last slide is bigger, but then the First two slides. I'll email you the notes if you need if you need those. Does the faithfulness faithlessness of the Israelites nullify the faithfulness of God? There is a Greek phrase that is the strongest negative that Paul has at his disposal, and he uses it twice here in verse four and in verse six. It and another translation may say absolutely not or God forbid, or by no means, absolutely not. The faithlessness of the Israelites does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Doesn't God's choosing unfaithful people, knowing that they were going to be unfaithful, somehow show that God is wrong in his choosing? And his giving the law, and how he gives his word, and how he condemns is going to condemn the guilty. And guilty people are illogical at times and try to distract from feeling guilty. And when you get enough people in the corner that are all painted in the corner themselves, they can make up false religions to ease their guilt. And they have. And they do. And you get enough immoral people from Romans 1 together, and they have a month that they celebrate their immorality. And the questions of the guilty are illogical questions, but you can expect guilty people to ask illogical questions. Doesn't God's choosing unfaithful people show him to be wrong? And the answer, verse 4, <laughs> absolutely not. And then he quotes Old Testament, verse 4. Let God be true, and everyone were a liar, as it is written. 
Psalm 116 forces, all mankind are liars. And then he quotes Psalm 51, 4, which will be on our next slide. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The questions go on in verse 5. We'll come back to verse 4. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? If us being in a corner in unrighteousness, we have broken God's laws, whether you're moral, whether you are immoral, whether you're religious, you have, we saw that in Romans 1 and 2. We've all been painted in a corner. No one escapes. All of us humankind on the face of the earth are all in the same corner and this corner is the guilty corner we're all guilty before god and in an unrighteous way we connect with unrighteous people and discuss our unrighteousness and we think god allowed this to happen to me if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And here's another illogical statement in verse 5, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is God unrighteous to judge guilty people? How many times have you and I heard in talking with people, you think a loving God wouldn't send people to hell? That's an illogical statement. But we hear it all the time. And when they realize that a, right, a loving God is sending people to hell, then they think, well, like verse 5, God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? God isn't doing what is right in allowing us to paint ourselves in the corner and then condemning us for us painting ourselves in the corner. questions of the guilty. Second question from verse 5. Doesn't God's wrath on the guilty show him to be wrong? And then he puts a, a bracket here, uh, or our trans, all our translations put it here. I, I speak in, in a human way, like humanly speaking. And how is he going to answer that question, doesn't God's wrath on the guilty show him to be wrong? Verse 6 begins with, by no means, absolutely not. There's no way God is unrighteous in this process of judging a guilty world. But guilty people think that he is. It seems logical to them because they can't blame themselves for painting themselves in the corner. They've got to blame God for allowing it to happen or for judging them because it did happen. And God's wrath on the guilty, a lot of guilty people think this, shows God to be wrong. And so we create a religion where God allows you to, or God approves of all kinds of sin and will overlook it. Will be like a grandfather at Christmas. You are an awful kid, and yet he still gives you presents. And he winks. That's all right. You'll do better next year. That's not how God handles our sin. He doesn't wink. 
and let us go. Doesn't God's wrath on the guilty show him to be wrong? Verse 6 says, absolutely not. And then some questions for the guilty. How then could God judge the world? If he is unrighteous, and we do not want an unrighteous judge judging the world. From the very first book of the Bible, as God goes to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and he has this conversation with Abraham, coming up in this conversation says this, Will not the judge of the whole world do what is right? And that theme plays out, and you saw it in Psalm 96, uh, 13. You saw it at the end of Psalm 98, where we are rejoicing that we know God and we can, we can worship Him. But when He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the earth in righteousness and faithfulness. Another translation says truth. God always judges in righteousness. Psalm 98 said equity. God always gives what is fair and right. That's my next slide. I'm getting ahead. All right, questions of the guilty. Verse 7, ask some more questions. Or verse 6 says, how could he judge the world if he is unrighteous? He's doing what's wrong. And then you think, okay, in a guilty corner, a lot of people thinking this same way, thinking, oh man, we are doomed because we have an unrighteous judge who's going to condemn us for us painting ourselves in the corner. And you get enough people organized, communicating, meeting together. What comes out of those meetings? Atheism, agnosticism, anger at God. Wrong responses. Romans 2 tells us God's kindness is meant to lead you somewhere. And it's not anger at Him. It is meant to lead you to repentance. So the guilty are asking illogical questions, thinking things that aren't true about God. And then another thing, verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And you get another intellectual group of guilty people in the corner. And they come up with, you know those church people, they always say that we're made for God's glory. And that's true. We all exist on this planet for the glory of God. And so they take it a step further. If we're, if we're created for God's glory, and through my lie, which we all lie, God truth abounds to his glory. Like compared to us and all of us in the corner, God looks really truthful, and that's true. And because compared to all guilty liars, God is true. He's the only one that's true. He's the only one that hasn't lied. It was said of Jesus, never was deceit found in his mouth. So compared to guilty sinners, God is the only one who has never lied. And God gets glory because he's the only one who's told the truth, and all of us in the guilty corner are liars. So what's the result of that? The intellectual people in the corner say, well, God's getting glory from that. So why isn't that enough? Why does he have to go a step further after getting glory by condemning all of us? 
Isn't he getting glory enough by us being liars and him being the only truth teller? It sounds somewhat logical. If God's wrath on the guilty gets him glory, then why is condemnation on sinners necessary? Why isn't it just enough for God to let us go? And if you get enough intellectual people thinking that way and organizing a religion, you know what you come up with? Annihilationism, which means you go in the ground and nothing happens. You go in the ground, you live this life, God let you live your life, you actually had consequences for your sin on this planet, and when you die, you go in the ground and nothing happens. It's not true. That's not how it ends. But whenever you're convinced in a guilty corner with other really smart people and you think God gets glory with letting us go on this earth and letting us do what Romans 1 tells us we did with ourselves, why are we still condemned after we die? Isn't, it, isn't uh, just his wrath on earth enough? Seems somewhat logical, but... It's the questions of a guilty, lying corner. And then the final questions. Verse 8, And why not do evil, that good may come? You Christians think that you can be forgiven of all your sins. So if you can be forgiven of all your sins, then after salvation, why don't you just sin? Romans 5 is going to say that again in, in a little different way. but And as Paul ana- uh, analyzes this question with some commentary here in verse 8, he says, As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Okay, so some people said this about Paul, and I'm, sh- I'm sure it was the Jewish people that were following him around, trying to get people not to listen to Paul and Silas, Paul, and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. And what's the question here? Doesn't the gospel allow people to be evil so that you can be easily forgiven? Where does this lead to? Some other false religion that says you can't easily be forgiven. You have to work off your own sins. Okay, this doesn't lead to the truth either. All these questions leave the guilty person could be organized, could be uh, highly, as we said last time, uh, very uh, structured, very formal, very somewhat logical, I'll say. But it's not based on truth. What truths are these four questions missing and the text brings out for us? Okay, so now we're going to go back through the text and we're going to look for what can we learn about God that will help answer these questions and why these questions are not the right questions to ask or entertain or find other people that are asking the same questions and see where they came to, what conclusions. Okay, it can be very quickly blind leading the blind, as Romans 2 said, instructors of the foolish and um, how people self-identify. The conclusions of the righteous judge. God gives us truth about himself 
and the guilty may or may not listen to this truth. They may listen to other people in their painted corners, finding people asking the same questions, having the same grievances with God, organizing themselves into a religion and putting it out there for the world so that everyone else is asking these same questions can find them and can read their books and can follow their teachings and feel better about themselves, but never leaving, never leaving the guilty corner. And will be condemned one day by a just God who will do what is right. No matter how organized you are, no matter how many people follow your line of reasoning, if you are not right with God, you are not headed for heaven. So the conclusions of the righteous judge, what can we learn from verses 1 through 3? Well, we see the phrase here at the end of verse 3, the faithfulness of God. And if Paul answers verse 4 with absolutely not, so what are we going to say? That God is, in verses 1 through 3, faithful. And he's entrusted his word to a certain group of people who are going to handle it with utmost respect and reverence. You know what God what that shows about God? God's wisdom. God wisely chose his people to entrust them with his word. You can see God's wisdom here in verses 1 to 3. He did not make a mistake in choosing the Jewish people. Even though they were unfaithful, he wisely chose them. And because he chose the Jewish people, we have in our laps his very words. Translated from Hebrew in the Old Testament and a little Aramaic and then a Greek in the New Testament. God knew what he was doing in giving the Jewish people his words. We have them. Second, God powerfully judges lying mankind with his truth. David, when he was in sin with Bathsheba, had painted himself in a corner. There was nowhere to escape for David. He had taken another man's wife. He had tried to get that man to sleep with the wife that he had stolen, and it didn't work. And then, because that didn't work, he killed that man and then married Bathsheba. And then, in the process, other men died in that battle. All the time, his pen is silent. He is not writing psalms like um, that we, we see in, in the Psalter. He's in a guilty corner. He's in a very guilty place. Only he knows, Bathsheba knows the extent of the sin until it's revealed. Now everybody that reads First Sam, Second Samuel 11 knows the story. There's two psalms written in confession. One is Psalm 32, the other is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 verse 4 is up here. And David says in his confession, you can read the whole psalm, but verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Every sin is evil 
in God's sight. The guilty corner needs to be told this. There was once you and I were in this guilty corner and someone had enough love for us and said, you are guilty. Stop trying to ask questions that are leading you nowhere. They're leading you to other people who are guilty and connecting you to people with really weird views of who God is. Go to God's word and you will find that God is justified in his words and blameless when he judges. David, in his confession, came to this conclusion. I've only sinned against God, and if God were to judge me, he would be just. And his word is blameless. His judgment is right. And when Paul writes to a guilty people here, and us having this information to know how to talk to and how to reach out to guilty people because we were once guilty and come up with some really crazy questions about God. God will be justified in his words and he will prevail when he is judged. It's written in the Old Testament. It is in the New. And what is the comparison in verse 4? Let God be true, though every one were a liar. And you and I can look at Psalm 116, verse 4, and it says in the end of that verse, all mankind are liars. All. There is not one person that has ever lived who has not told a lie except for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Every single child has lied. Every single adult has stretched the truth. So what do we conclude about God? God powerfully judges lying mankind with his truth. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament to convince a guilty corner that they are guilty and that God is not wrong for allowing them to paint themselves in the corner. And God will powerfully judge them. If you don't think God will powerfully judge, read Revelation. It is pretty clear God's power is on vivid display there. And uh, Revelation 21.8 says, All liars will have their place in a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Lying is enough to put you in that guilty corner needing rescued. God powerfully judges. The next, look at verse Five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Compared to our unrighteousness and the whole world's unrighteousness in our guilty corner, the unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. If everyone is unrighteous, that doesn't make unrighteousness not bad. If only God is righteous, then that doesn't change the fact that he's the only one that's righteous. He's done what's right. That's what righteousness is. He's never done what's wrong. And the rest of verse 5, 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And the answer obviously is no way. How could he judge the world? He's going to judge the world very clearly in many passages in the New Testament, Old Testament. God is going to judge the world in righteousness. He will not be bribed. There is no partiality with him. He is the righteous judge. He, you will not pay him off. You will not argue your way out of the, the guilty corner. God righteously judges lying mankind. And we didn't get to this verse yet, but verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. And that's true. Instead of the if, we should just say, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. But guilty people want to put an if where there shouldn't be one. If you are the son of God, Satan said. If God is loving, he wouldn't send. Those ifs are in the wrong place. It shows a guilty person that you are a guilty person and needing of rescued. God righteously judging, lying mankind for his glory. Are you seeing a theme here with just these three? There is God's word, God's truth, and God's glory. We could have mentioned God's truth again with this point because it says God's truth abounds to his glory. God's word and God's truth is what he uses to judge mankind. This isn't going to be a surprise. He's not going to give you a pop quiz like a teacher who is cruel and didn't tell you what to study and the book does and he asks you questions that weren't in your notes and weren't in the text that you were supposed to study. This is not our God. He tells exactly what he expects in his word. And then he judges according to the truth of that word. Why? Because he is the righteous judge. He will get glory. And finally, we missed, we, we uh, skipped the last phrase of the passage, verse 8. Verse 8 says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And he doesn't give that, he doesn't leave that hanging, that thought. He gives it a conclusion here, like a period. Their condemnation is just. If you have another translation, it says it's deserved. In a guilty corner, there's a lot of guilty people thinking they deserve better than what they have now or what they're going to get in the future. And if we're not in the guilty corner now, we deserve to be there. And all of us know it. That's why it's hard to sing. That all of our sins are nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We were all in the guilty corner. Nobody escapes. God's justice, God's love, His faithfulness, His word, His truth, His glory is on display as He powerfully, wisely, righteously judges, faithfully judges. And finally here, God's, God justly condemns all those 
who do evil. No one is going to hell, the lake of fire for all eternity, and says, I don't deserve this. Everyone will know they did deserve it. And all of us who are redeemed realize we deserve it too. The only reason we're not getting it is because of Christ. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this difficult passage that has questions that are somewhat illogical and we can't always uh, prepare as we go out to evangelize what questions you're going to get? But what we can do is expect the clear presentation of the gospel to cause the guilty to question the word and the ways of God. You'll hear it over and over again as you evangelize, as you talk to people about uh, the bad news of Romans 1, 2, and 3. You will expect guilty people in a corner to have watched YouTube videos that have connected online with some blogs and some, uh, all these different ways of connecting podcasts of people that deconstructed, um, all these different ways of connecting with the guilty. But you can expect the guilty to question the word and the ways of God. It's going to happen. Um, and so what do you do when you're questioned? Well, keep learning who God is from his word in order to be convinced. You don't have to convince everyone in the guilty corner of these four things about God. You have to be convinced of those four things. And when God the Holy Spirit lives inside of your heart and your life. And whenever you read God's word and you read the Old Testament and New Testament, you see that God is perfectly faithful, perfectly true, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. The Holy Spirit tells your wicked heart who sometimes sympathizes with the guilty corner because you were there and you sometimes believe some of those lies. You're guilty, you're you're. Your heart that can be swayed says, agrees with the Holy Spirit, says, no, I'm not going to agree with the guilty against God. God is perfect. His ways are perfect. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to feel good. It's not going to feel good when the wicked are condemned. It will be right, though. And the judge of all the earth, he'll do what's right. We have loved ones that we can't imagine what it's going to be like for them. But that should motivate us to keep learning from God. God, use us to show the world that you are perfectly faithful, true, righteous, and just. And then keep sharing what you learn with believers and with unbelievers. And we could say with Paul, as was mentioned in Sunday school, back in verse 17 of chapter 1, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we reach out our hand to the guilty corner. And there are billions of people there. And we tell them, there is one way to be right with God. And it's not by connecting to other guilty people. by faith in what Jesus did on the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your truth. I pray that you would convince us as we are going to be confronted with questions, as we evangelize and share the gospel, that you would help us to know who you are. You are a God of truth and faithfulness and righteousness and wisdom and power and glory. And one day you will judge and it will be right. Help us to trust you. Help us to know you and help us to share you for Christ's glory, we pray. Amen.